Have you ever had a lucid dream, an out-of-body experience, or a mystical moment that caused you to change your view about the world we live in? Have you ever wondered how that happened, or even why it happened? And have you ever had the desire to have another similar experience? It is that transcendental moment where we abandon everything that we know, and we begin to experience the realm of the unknown, as if the mystery of the self is being revealed to us. I'm your host, Dr. Joe Dispenza, and in the previous episode, we compared the realms of space-time and time-space. The material world, the realm of three-dimensional reality, the world of the senses where everything takes time to happen, to the immaterial world, the realm of the fifth dimension of reality and beyond, the world beyond the senses, made of energy and frequency. In the next two episodes, I would like to demystify the mystical by combining the science of that lucid world that seems so real to us in the moment with ancient wisdom to show you latent systems in your brain and body that once activated will take you to realms beyond space and time. It is in this place that ancient civilizations, which thrived for thousands of years, were the most interested in. It is my hope that everything you learn in this episode will demystify the mystical so that you can begin to explore a transcendental world that exists beyond your senses. Let's start with introducing you to the pineal gland and two important neurotransmitters, serotonin and melatonin. Let's start with the word pineal or pineal. Both pronunciations are correct. Pineal or pineal meaning pine cone shape. The pineal gland, it looks just like a pine cone. There's no coincidence that it's called pine cone shaped. Now the pineal gland is a tiny little gland little bigger than the size of a grain of rice. It's right between the back of your throat and the back of your head. And it's important to know exactly where it is because when we begin to practice activating the pineal gland, you're going to have to become aware of where it exists and put your attention on it. And where you place your attention is where you place your energy. And the more you pay attention to it, the more you become aware of it, the more you stay present with it, the more you begin to put energy to begin to activate it. The pineal gland is very sensitive to visible light. Light that's coming from the sun or light that's coming from lights that we have in our homes or in our offices. That wavelength of light once light is perceived when our eyes are open, the frequency of light is picked up by the optic nerve, and it sends a signal right to a nucleus in the brain called the suprachiasmic nucleus. That nucleus signals the sympathetic nervous system, which signals the pineal gland, and the pineal gland gets busy making a neurotransmitter called serotonin. And serotonin is the daytime neurotransmitter that once activated begins to cause us to become aware that we're local in space and time and we become conscious that we're our bodies in an environment and in time. And it produces a certain brainwave frequency called beta brainwave frequencies. It is beta brainwaves that causes us to put most of our attention on the outer world. 
Now, the release of serotonin then gets us up and gets us busy during the day. This graphic represents that small frequency of visible light that exists in the entire electromagnetic spectrum and is that tiny little sliver of all of reality that our eyes and our senses are the most sensitive to. When there's an inhibition of light or there's a lack of light, the lack of the wavelength of light that usually hits the back of the eye, the optic nerve, begins to diminish the release of serotonin in the brain. And so the inhibition of light signals the same nucleus in the brain called the suprachiasmic nucleus, which then dampens down the sympathetic nervous system. And now the pineal gland begins to make a chemical called melatonin. And melatonin is the nighttime neurotransmitter. And as melatonin levels begin to rise because of darkness in the evening, then all of a sudden we begin to slow our brain waves down into alpha and theta and ultimately delta. And it's melatonin then that allows our body to restore and regenerate. So serotonin gets us up in the morning and melatonin puts us to bed at night. And those are two important neurotransmitters that function in a rhythm called the circadian rhythm. And when you live in a certain environment, in a certain place in the world, and as the sun comes up and the sun goes down, your brain chemistry becomes entrained to light. There's an amino acid called L-tryptophan that is the raw material or the building block of serotonin and melatonin. L-tryptophan is turned into 5-hydroxytryptophan, which is called 5-HTP, which in another chemical cycle takes place, and all of a sudden we have serotonin. Serotonin goes through another biological process, a biochemical process, and is turned into N-acetylserotonin, which ultimately becomes melatonin. So very simple chemical pathways in the pineal gland that is the alchemist in the back of the brain that facilitates this process based on the wavelength or the frequency of visible light. Melatonin levels are at their highest during a 24-hour cycle between 1 a.m. and 4 a.m. And that's important for you to know because when we do the meditation to activate this ancient gland in the back of the brain, it's always important to know that it's a good idea to wake up early enough when the raw materials are at their height. Melatonin levels tend to go down as stress hormone levels go up. And that is a very, very adaptive function over thousands of years of trial and error in an environment. So when there's a stressful event, a dangerous event, when there's a perception of something threatening in the environment, we turn on the stress hormones, the fight or flight nervous system, the sympathetic nervous system, and now we're prepared for danger. So as long as we're perceiving a threat in the outer world, it makes sense then it's not a good idea to go to sleep because sleeping means you would be more vulnerable and possibly prey. So as melatonin levels go down, as stress hormones go up, our sleep patterns are interrupted because the very raw material that causes us to sleep is diminished. Now, as stress levels go down and we're out of survival, out of emergency mode, then melatonin levels go up and the body can restore, regenerate, and repair. 
Now, melatonin, the research on it has been profoundly interesting because there's so many important biological processes that melatonin is involved in. Melatonin promotes DNA repair and replication. It stops cortisol oversecretion in response to stress. In other words, if your melatonin levels begin to go up, your stress hormone levels go down, and a little administration or a little addition of melatonin sometimes is enough to jumpstart us to move into restorative sleep. It also improved carbohydrate metabolism. Now, this is an interesting concept because in antiquity, when we were stressed or living in survival, many times it meant famine or the lack of food. So when the survival gene is switched on, all of a sudden now the body's going to take carbohydrates and store them as fats so that we have a reserve of energy in the body. So people who are constantly under stress always are taking carbohydrates and storing them as fats. Melatonin tends to break that cycle. It lowers triglyceride levels. It inhibited atherosclerosis or hardening of the arteries. It heightens both cellular and metabolic immune responses. It decreased certain tumor developments in laboratory animals. In certain laboratory animals, it increased lifespan by 25%. It has a very important neuroprotective role in the brain. It increases REM sleep. It is an important free radical scavenger and antioxidant. Now, antioxidant means anti-cancer, anti-aging, anti-heart disease, anti-stroke, anti-neurodegenerative, anti-inflammatory, antimicrobial. Now, I want you to remember these important points about melatonin because melatonin is essential for our bodies to repair and regenerate. This is the ancient symbol from the Egyptian culture called the Eye of Horus. Next to it, this is what's called a sagittal section of the brain. Now, if you took the two halves of the brain and you divided them right down the middle and you pulled them apart, you would be looking at a side view of the brain. And there's a very striking resemblance between the limbic brain, the seat of the autonomic nervous system, and the Eye of Horus. And it's important for you to understand that this represents some type of inner vision. Pineal gland has been known to be called the third eye because once it's stimulated and activated to the next level, it gives us profound inner vision. This is called Fibonacci's constant or the golden mean. If you were to follow that golden mean right around the circumference of the brain, it would wind up at the exact spot of where the pineal gland exists in the brain. And many different things in nature, from the universe to seashells to the inner shape of a flower, all represent this golden mean pattern. Now, the pineal gland has a simple vein, artery, and nerve moving in and a vein, artery, and nerve moving out, and it has a very rich and dense blood supply. Take a look at this article that I discovered, Characterization and Potential Role of Electromechanical Transduction, New Crystals in the Pineal Gland. Now, the abstract says, the pineal gland is a neuroendocrine transducer secreting melatonin responsible for the physiological circadian rhythm control. 
A new form of biomineralization has been studied in the human pineal gland. It consists of small crystals that are less than 20 microns in length. These crystals could be responsible for an electromechanical biological transduction mechanism in the pineal gland due to their structure and their piezoelectric properties. Now that's a mouthful of words, but there's only two words that I want you to pay attention to. Piezoelectric properties and transducer. Just remember those. Now, in the next page, it says the pineal gland microcrystals appear as a stack of thin rhombohedrons with their flat surfaces normal to the long axis of the crystal. If you were to visualize that, you have these calcium carbonate or calcite crystals that are rhombohedron in shape that are stacked on top of each other in the pineal gland. And when you apply a mechanical stress and you begin to compress those crystals, the compression of those crystals begins to produce an external electromagnetic field or begins to take one form of energy, mechanical stress, and turn it into another form of energy, an electrical charge. These are those rhombohedron crystals that were in the previous article, and you have them in your pineal gland. In fact, many vertebrates have the same crystals in their pineal gland. Homing pigeons, as an example, have these tiny crystals, just like you and I, that are very sensitive to electromagnetic energy. And because the Earth has its own electromagnetic field, the pigeons can actually tune into the strongest signal and they can navigate from one place to another place because they're sensitive to electromagnetism and that's information they're picking up that's transcendent of their senses. I want to talk about piezoelectric effects. So, piezoelectric effect is the ability of certain materials to generate an electrical charge in response to an applied mechanical stress. The word piezoelectric is derived from the Greek piezion, which means to squeeze or press, and piezo in Greek, which means to push. Now, one of the unique characteristics of the piezoelectric effect is that it is reversible, meaning that the materials exhibiting the direct piezoelectric effect that's the generation of electricity when stress is applied, also exhibit a converse piezoelectric effect, the generation of stress when an electrical field is applied. Stay with me because when piezoelectric material is placed under mechanical stress, a shifting of positive negative charges centers in the material, which then results in an external electrical field. When reversed, the outer electrical field either stretches or compresses the piezoelectric material. Now that's a lot of words, but I want you to hang in there with me now because I'm going to demystify that process. How is it then can we compress those crystals inside our brain? How can we apply mechanical stress? If our brain is encased in this ivory cavern called our skull, how are we gonna get in there and compress those crystals? Inside your skull, your spinal column, and the bone at the base of your spine called your sacrum is the most delicate system in your body called the central nervous system. 
In fact, without the aid of your nervous system, you couldn't digest your food, you couldn't void your bladder, you couldn't blink your eyes, you couldn't move without the aid of your nervous system. So think of your nervous system as the electrical wires that run the machine. Inside this closed system is fluid called cerebrospinal fluid. And cerebrospinal fluid has some basic functions. It acts to create buoyancy in the central nervous system. It acts to have a neuroprotective role for trauma in case there's movement or deceleration. It's the fluid that protects the brain and the spinal cord against its bony edges. It acts to transport fluids and other chemicals and nutrients to different parts of the brain and the nervous system. And finally, it has an important role to enhance conductivity or electrical charges in the nervous system. When you inhale, the sutures of your skull open up, and when you exhale, the sutures of your skull close. At the same time, at the base of your spine, where that sacrum bone exists, when you inhale, that sacrum bone flexes back, and when you exhale, that sacrum bone flexes forward. So I'll visualize this with me. The inhalation causes the sutures to open up, there's more volume in the skull, and the sacrum bone flexing back causes that cerebral spinal fluid to drain down in gravity. When you exhale and the sacrum bone flexes forward and the system closes down and those sutures close, it begins to propagate a wave to move the cerebral spinal fluid up against gravity. Now, if you were to charge one molecule of cerebral spinal fluid and tag it and follow it during the course of the day, that cerebral spinal fluid moved from the base of your spine all the way up through four different chambers called aqueducts or ventricles in the brain, pass all the way through and come all the way down, it would take 12 hours for a healthy person to begin to move that cerebral spinal fluid all the way through that system. So in a sense, we flush our brains twice a day. What would happen if you were to contract the intrinsic muscles in your body, the muscles you use for elimination, the muscles you use for intercourse. You were to contract your lower abdomen, pull your belly button in towards your spine, and contract your upper abdomen. The act of contracting these intrinsic muscles in the ancient yogic tradition called the bandhas, as you squeeze these muscles, you begin to push that cerebral spinal fluid up. Now what if you were to take one slow, steady breath, and as you slowly follow your breath and you contract those intrinsic muscles as you follow your breath and you bring that breath all the way up to that pineal gland and you hold your breath and you keep your attention on that pineal gland that's your target the act of contracting those muscles along with the holding of your breath would begin to push cerebral spinal fluid right up into your brain and as you begin to hold your breath you're pushing that cerebral spinal fluid right up against the crystals of the pineal gland and applying a mechanical stress. And then the mechanical stress begins to electrically activate those crystals. And when those crystals become electrically activated, we are turning on the radio receiver in the brain. Now, take a look at the ventricles in your brain. You have a fourth ventricle that sits close to the brainstem. Take a look at the third ventricle, that place right there, that corner right there, 
is where the pineal gland sits in the dead end. And then you have two lateral ventricles. Now take a look at this. This is the ventricles and it looks a lot like that eye of Horace that we were talking about. Here's the movement of that fluid. You can see that it comes up from the body to the brain. It passes through all of those aqueducts. It travels along the surface of the top of the neocortex and it drains all the way back down. So then when you inhale and take a slow, steady breath and coordinate that breath with a contraction of muscles, what you're doing now is you're delivering energy into the brain by electrically activating it. This is a magnet. A magnet has a north pole and a south pole. And the stronger the polarity between the north pole and the south pole, the stronger there is an invisible electromagnetic field that exists around the magnet. You can't see that field with your senses, but it exists. And in fact, if you were to take a magnet and place it on top of metal shavings, those metal shavings will begin to organize themselves right in the patterns of the electromagnetic field energy having an effect on matter. Your body is also a magnet. It has a North Pole and a South Pole. And Asian cultures have known about this for thousands of years. Some of the research that was done at Yale University in the 40s in studying eggs of different vertebrates, when they studied those eggs, they found that 100% of the time, that the positive charge was always at the head and the negative charge was always at the tail, meaning that there's an invisible electromagnetic field that is actually in the shape of the egg. Well, the body has the same mechanisms. We know that by the time we're 35 years old, most of our energy is stored in the body subconsciously and 5% is stored in the brain and the mind. Why? Because if you're thinking certain thoughts that are producing certain chemicals that make you feel a certain way, and those thoughts are connected to anger or aggression or fear or guilt or suffering or shame, you're taking thought and beginning to store it as energy by feeling the same emotion in these lower centers of the body. So then, by the same means, the more we live by these first three centers in our body, the more we are drawing from this invisible field of light and information and turning it into chemistry, we're causing the very field around our body to shrink. And now we're becoming more matter and less energy, more particle and less wave. These first three centers are energy consumers. So we're drawing from the field and turning it into chemistry. We're squandering our very life force. So now we're like a piece of metal that no longer has an electromagnetic field or a piece of metal that's no longer a magnet. And now we have all this energy stored in the body and a very little bit amount of energy stored in the brain. So then there's gotta be a way to pull the mind out of the body and to deliver that energy right back in the brain and take all the energy that you use for making a baby all the energy that you use to digest a meal, all the energy that you use to react to someone or something, and instead of releasing it out, we want to draw it up into the brain. So then the breath is the way that we deliver energy back to the brain. Cerebral spinal fluid is made of proteins and salts in solution. 
And if you take proteins and salts and you drop them in solution, they develop a charge, either a positive charge or a negative charge. They gain or lose electrons. So now, when you do this breath and you begin to inhale and you squeeze those muscles, the act of squeezing those muscles and breathing and coordinating that act begins to move that cerebral spinal fluid towards your brain. Well, if you take a charged molecule and you accelerate it, you are going to produce an external field called an inductance field. If you move several charged molecules, you'll create a bigger inductance field. And once you begin to move energy like that, just like a magnet, you begin to produce what's called a torus field. And many things in nature, from the shape of an apple, to a universe, to an egg, resemble this torus field. Most people have most of their energy stored in their first three centers. And just like drawing fluid up a straw, we are pulling that energy with one slow, steady breath through our nose in the attempt to deliver that energy right up to the pineal gland. And once that energy moves from the body to the brain and it begins to produce more energy in the brain, we should begin to see the same effect like a magnet. And it's the intrinsic breath the contraction of those muscles, along with the slow, steady breath and having our attention on the target, that once that energy begins to move, something amazing happens. There is a activation of the sympathetic nervous system. And when the sympathetic nervous system is activated, now it's taking all that energy that's normally stored in those first three centers, the energy that it takes to make a baby, the energy to digest the meal, the energy to run from a predator or to react to someone or something. And now that energy is traveling up to the brain and the sympathetic nervous system switches on. And once it's switched on, there's an arousal that takes place. And that energy moves right up to the brain. And once it reaches the brain, it begins to produce an external electromagnetic field. The energy at the base of the spine is a lot slower. As it moves up, the energy gets faster. And once that energy moves from the base of the spine all the way up to the brain, just like a magnet, we are going to begin to produce an ambient electromagnetic field. The pineal gland has tiny little cilia, hair-like extensions all around it. When you hold your breath and you finally let your breath out and you allow that cerebral spinal fluid to accelerate, the acceleration of that cerebral spinal fluid begins to stimulate and tickle those little cilia. And as it begins to become stimulated, the pineal gland begins to release very sacred chemicals, which we'll talk about in the next episode. So as you inhale and draw that energy up, once the sympathetic nervous system switches on and merges with the parasympathetic nervous system, the person is going to release an enormous amount of energy up into the brain. Now there's a gate at the brainstem called the thalamic gate. And that gate typically is closed. And it participates with a system called the reticular activating system, or the RAS. Now, the RAS is responsible for levels of awareness. If your cat is in the kitchen and knocks something over, or you hear somebody outside in the middle of the night, it's the reticular activating system that brings you to a greater level of awareness. But the majority of the time, the stimulation is coming from our senses, what we're hearing or what we're seeing. Now, when the arousal of the sympathetic nervous system happens this way, 
Once that energy moves up and that gate opens up, it moves right up into the brain and now the brain goes into a super conscious or super aware state and the brainwave patterns that are created are called gamma brainwave patterns and gamma brainwave patterns are associated with super consciousness or super awareness. And now the person has an activation in their brain and they're super conscious, super aware. But the feelings and the arousal is more like bliss, more like ecstasy. And the person is having a tremendous release of energy into the brain. And in a sense then, they're almost like having an orgasm in their brain. And that is the release of the Kundalini. Now that you have an understanding of the pineal gland and how to activate it, in the next episode, we'll talk about how the pineal gland, once switched on, acts as a radio receiver to pick up information beyond the senses into meaningful lucid imagery, the same way that a TV antenna picks up frequency and decodes it into pictures. In other words, we'll uncover the science behind bridging the physics of frequency and energy with our biology and our brain. Stay tuned because I'll be showing you actual brain scans in real time to prove to you that it's possible. I'm your host, Dr. Joe Dispenza for Rewired, and I hope to see you in the next episode where we go beyond the ordinary into the extraordinary.